On November 9, 1864, Governor John N. Goodwin wrote an open letter to the first members of the legislature of the Territory of Arizona. In it, he wrote, quote, It gives me pleasure to inform you that all business requiring your attention has been submitted to you, and I have only to express my full appreciation of the diligence and wisdom with which your labors have been prosecuted and of their great value to the territory. Further down, he said, quote, No portion of the territory has been overlooked, and no interest of its people has been neglected. In addition to the ordinary business of the session, a complete code of laws has been adopted, one which will meet all the wants of our young commonwealth and will compare favorably with the statutes of the older states. You have been in session 43 days, and a greater amount of labor was never performed by a legislative body in the same time. Finally, he said, quote, I congratulate you on the harmony and good feelings which have characterized your deliberations. You can now separate with the consciousness that your duties are performed. End quote. And with that glowing endorsement, it's time that we dive into what exact duties this first legislature performed. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 51, A Good Code of Laws. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for your patience and understanding with the last week. A death in the family is something you simply cannot plan for. My family is still reeling, but we are getting through. That is where my brain has been for the past week. But for now, let's get back to Arizona history. After that hopefully amusing rabbit hole we fell down last time, we have to sadly leave the wonderland that is the life of William Claude Jones and return to the real world. Because now that we know some of the colorful characters who made up Arizona's first territorial legislature, we should actually cover, you know, what they did. The legislative session was to open on September 26, 1864. But upon meeting, found that several of the representatives had not yet been able to make it to Prescott. So the representatives who made it on time, led by Territorial Secretary Richard C. McCormick, he of the baking powder seal, did the only reasonable thing and only carried out one item of business, sending out for a generous quantity of tobacco and alcohol. A few days later, on September 29th, all the representatives had managed to arrive in the business of the legislature, aside from making sure they were well stocked with, um, provisions, could begin. Governor John N. Goodwin opened the session with a speech that covered a wide range of topics, most of which we will get into as the legislature gets to work. Among the items listed in his speech was a reminder that Arizona was, for the moment, working under the laws that were in operation in New Mexico, until either appealed or amended. Part of this was Goodwin's concern for mining interests, wanting to help expedite such ventures where possible and, like nearby California, adopt Mexican mining law and to avoid water monopolies. 
The legislature would act on this once the session got started, allowing military personnel to engage in mining operations and, under the U.S. laws at the time, granting 160 acres to anyone who occupied and cleared them. The governor also wanted certain parts of New Mexico's law code repealed as quickly as possible, namely the bits that allowed for indentured servitude and imprisonment for debts. These, he argued, and with something of a point, were antithetical with the war to end slavery happening back east. The legislature did take up the challenge of crafting a body of law unique to the territory. On October 1st, legislation was passed to empower the governor to appoint a commissioner to prepare just such a code of laws. Remarkably, two days later on October 3rd, just such a code was submitted for the legislature's review. If that timing seems a little quick to you, let me explain. The man Goodwin appointed was Territorial Supreme Court Justice William T. Howell, who also oversaw the first judicial district in Tucson. Howell had been born in New York in 1810, but as a young man had moved to Michigan where he practiced law and steadily rose up the ranks and also dabbled in politics. He was apparently well known enough that he was assigned by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 to help round out the slate of officials being appointed to oversee the new territory of Arizona. Once in Tucson, he quickly found, in his words, that the Code of New Mexico was, quote, ill-adapted to our condition, end quote. On his own initiative, in March 1864, he began to compile a proposed law code that would better reflect life and conditions in Arizona. Into this project, he enlisted Colds Bashford, who we talked about last time when he was elected to be the president of the Council of the Territorial Legislature. Both able lawyers, the two pored over the law books of California, New York, and other states to find laws that would be better suited for Arizona. When it came to mining law in particular, Hal and Bashford anticipated Goodwin's calls for open mining laws, forming theirs out of those currently practiced in Mexico and California. After about 90 days of total work, Hal and Bashford had compiled a 400-page body of law that would become known as the Howell Code. Of course, the territorial legislature would have its own thoughts and opinions and amendments for this body of laws, but it was a great place to start. The irony is that by the time Goodwin submitted this huge tome of laws on October 3rd, Hal had actually left the territory, returning to Michigan to see after his sick wife. He actually would not come back, though he didn't officially resign until March 1865. One history dryly notes that Hal received more compensation than just having his name attached to Arizona's new body of laws. The legislature had appropriated $2,500 for the legal commissioner to do his work. I'm guessing they didn't realize that Hal had already done the work on his own time. And at the same time, Hal was also earning $2,500 a year as part of his government salary, with the money coming in starting at his appointment in 1863 and running until his resignation in 1865. Overall then, Hal received roughly $7,500 for only six months of actual time on the job. That's not too shabby for government work. I will note that the legislative committee that first considered the Howell Code contained none other than that charming rogue, William Claude Jones. 
It's unknown how much he actually contributed to the code that eventually was passed, but we know that he did translate an abridgment of it into Spanish. Of course, he would later tell people in Hawaii that he had been the one that had framed Arizona's first set of laws. As I alluded to several times now, another early sticking point was the location of the territorial capital. As you might imagine, not everyone was that happy about it being located in Prescott. Goodwin had been the one who located the territorial capital there, but an actual House bill had to go through the legislature, which meant it could be amended to move the capital pretty much anywhere else. Now, the governor was not insensible to the fact that many folks, especially those from Tucson, were not too happy about his chosen location in the middle of nowhere. In his opening address to the legislature, he basically asked for the impossible when he said, quote, I can only urge that no consideration of local advantage or sectional feelings and jealousy should be suffered to control a question of so great public importance. The claims and advantages of the different sites should be carefully weighed and a location be made that will not require an immediate change. End quote. Yeah, I'm not sure who Goodwin thought he was dealing with, but it soon became evident that local advantage and sectional feelings were definitely going to be a factor into how the decision was going to be made. When the legislature took up the capital question, an amendment was proposed immediately to throw the capital over to La Paz on the Colorado River, but this failed in an 8-9 vote. Next, Jones moved that the capital be moved further south along the Hasayampa River to a place called Walnut Grove, population all of 40 on the 1870 census, but this too was defeated 8-9. Finally, this is when Jones suggested putting the capital at a spot that would be worked out by the governor and two commissioners, but must be within 10 miles of the junction of the Verde and Salt Rivers, and which would be called Aslan. This notion failed in a 7-10 vote. Though the bill making Prescott the capital passed, early state historian Thomas Farish rightly notes this was just the beginning of the debate and would be a bone of contention for years to come. Author Racy Colton also noted, quote, Nearly everyone wanted it any place but Prescott, but for lack of agreement on another location it remained, for the time being, at Prescott. End quote. But since the capital was, for now, settled at Prescott, it was time for the legislature to turn its attention on the best way to get people from here to there. Roads are always a prime concern when establishing a new territory, and finding routes across the Arizona landscape is something that has cropped up in our narrative time and time again, ever since humans first decided to call this place home. The only problem is that the legislature was working without much funding. Early state historian James H. McClintock relates that until an actual bond issue was floated, the only real income for the state was the federal payroll. McClintock claims that until November 1865, the territorial treasurer only collected $1,186.06, and almost every cent of that had come in from the counties. So, it shouldn't come as any surprise that when the first roads were being established, they were toll roads, and that individual legislators were quick to get in on this lucrative action. The legislature approved six new toll roads— five of which connected Prescott with the other parts of the territory, while the six was between Tucson and the Mexican city of Libertad in Sonora. 
From there, branches would then be built to connect more far-flung places to the main routes. So there would be routes to places, just to take southern Arizona as an example, such as Tubac, Sopari, and the Maori Mine. The histories I've read do not hesitate to declare that these roads charge tolls, all approved by the legislators, mind you, that could only be considered excessive. For example, the first north-south road built between Prescott and the Pima villages had a charge of five cents per mile. Other toll roads would charge one-eighth of a cent per mile for every single sheep, goat, or pig, while a wagon drawn by two horses, mules, or oxen would cost four cents per mile. For each additional span of animals drawing your wagon, you could expect an additional one and a half cent charge per mile. And if you were just some guy on a horse, you could still expect to pay two and a half cents per mile. Farish and others point out that these rates are high, especially in those spots where the ground is flat and there wasn't that much work involved in clearing a road to make it passable. So that's when you start to look at who was incorporating these toll roads. Surprise, surprise, they were often filled with the very legislators and other prominent leaders looking to capitalize on people's needs to get from point A to point B. For example, when you look at that north-south road, we find that the list of incorporators includes a lot of people we know or have met before. So here we find Richard C. McCormick, Jack Swilling, Robert Groom, and King S. Woolsey. Yep, they were making bank and a lot of legislators got in on the action. And government officials didn't just get in on toll roads. We find Governor Goodwin, McCormick, and others on the board of the Arizona Railway Company. This was an incorporated railroad line with exclusive rights to build a line between La Paz and Guaymas in Mexico, by way of Tucson and Tubac. However, this line just like another one that was meant to connect the mines in Castle Dome above modern Yuma with the rest of the world, didn't actually get built. And because we are still talking about transportation, the legislature also got into the Colorado River game, granting exclusive ferry rights at various points up and down the river. We learned from this that a man named Samuel Todd was given exclusive ferry rights up at Mojave City, while William D. Bradshaw, one of the runner-up candidates to be the territory's congressional delegate that we discussed last time, was granted a similar exclusive contract at La Paz. Another point of concern for Goodwin in his opening address was that of education. He said, quote, Self-government and universal education are inseparable. The one can be exercised only as the other is enjoyed. The common school, the high school, and the university should all be established and are worthy of your fostering care. End quote. It's nice rhetoric, and I personally agree with his sentiments, but the legislature's territorial committee came back with the findings that the territory was too sparsely populated to set up a regular system of common schools. Instead, they recommended that $250 be given to the mission school down at San Javier del Bac, while 250 was offered to set up schools at Prescott, La Paz, and Mojave, provided that they matched it with their own money. Only Prescott was able to take advantage of this offer. So, though the Howe Code did call for a system of common schooling at the public expense, by the end of the legislature's first session, no such system was ever really proposed or taxes levied to pay for it. 
it would be up to future governors, in particular Anson P.K. Safford, to really lead the charge for education in Arizona. Last week, I mentioned that early state historian James H. McClintock related that Charles Poston, elected as the delegate to Congress from the territory, said that he ended up doing very little while there, comparing himself to a tadpole in a pool full of frogs. That may have been true, but the legislature certainly kept him busy with requests to Congress. Throughout the first session, the territory's elected leaders passed resolutions calling on Poston to petition Congress for a number of different things, mostly involving additional funding for this or that. Since we already saw the high concerns they had for transportation, it should not come as any surprise that they, through Poston, requested $50,000 from Congress to help make the Colorado River more navigable between Fort Mojave and Fort Yuma with an additional $100,000 requested for more improvements above Fort Mojave. Another prime concern was establishing an honest-to-goodness postal service, since the only mail coming and going through the territory was still Carleton's military vedette service. The legislature asked Poston to request 12 different weekly postal routes that would connect communities across Arizona with each other and with outside communities such as Los Angeles, Albuquerque, and Fillmore up in Utah. That was quite the ask, considering that Congress had been of the opinion that Arizona was too sparsely settled for even one regular postal route. However, eventually eight postal routes would be set up that more or less went everywhere mail needed to go. While they had their hands out, the legislature also asked Poston to see if he couldn't get them something of a pay raise. The individual legislators were making $3 per day for their service, which they requested to be raised to $8 per day. They also asked that the annual salaries of the governor, territorial secretary, and superintendent of Indian Affairs be raised by $1,500 each, with other raises for the judges, the district attorney, and U.S. Marshal. But the biggest financial requests from the new territory had to do with how to handle the Amerindians. The first major request was for $150,000 to establish a reservation along the Colorado to gather up all the friendly tribes, this being the Yavapai, Quechins, Mojaves, and Wallapais. Goodwin actually recommended this in his opening address, saying that it was necessary to both remove these tribes to an irrigated place of their own to keep them from having encounters with miners and to separate them from the more hostile tribes in order so they don't get any ideas. For the record, yes, this is extremely patronizing and to modern ears sounds like just a way to get the natives off the land you want to mine. Congress would actually approve setting up a 75,000-acre reservation along the Colorado in December 1864, but wouldn't actually fund it until 1867, and only with a token sum then. The next major request was for even more money. $250,000 to deal with the natives who weren't so, um, amicably inclined. And yes, we're looking at you, Apaches. In his opening address, Goodwin dedicated a good amount of time to the Apache, declaring, quote, He is a murderer by hereditary descent, a thief by prescription. 
They have exhausted the ingenuity of fiends to invent more excruciating tortures for the unfortunate prisoners they may take. A little further down, he says, quote, They have made southern Arizona and Mexico a wilderness and a desolation. But for them, mines would be worked. Innumerable sheep and cattle would cover these plains, and some of the bravest and most energetic men that were ever pioneers of a new country, and who now fill bloody and unmarked graves, would be living to see their brightest anticipation realized. End quote. Though my personal favorite bit is the following line, quote, It is useless to speculate on the origin of this feeling, or inquire which party was right or wrong. It is enough to know that it is relentless and unchangeable. End quote. Yeah, we actually know the answer to that one. But anyway, Goodwin, before referencing Carlton and Kit Carson's work with the Navajos and Apache in New Mexico, gives his solution, which, surprise, surprise, is remarkably similar. Quote, As to them, one policy can be adopted— a war must be prosecuted until they are compelled to submit and go upon a reservation. End quote. With that as a backdrop, when the legislature took up the question, they followed Goodwin's lead and requested a posting to procure $250,000 to essentially prosecute a war with the Apache. That money was supposed to go to purchasing 500 Springfield rifles, ammunition, and other supplies in order to outfit a battalion of Arizona Rangers to take the fight to the Apache and other tribes who decided to resist. This is important to note because, with the Civil War still going on and most soldiers tied up elsewhere, Goodwin and the legislature took upon them a do-it-yourself approach. In his speech, Goodwin praised the recent campaigns led by rancher-slash-legislator-slash-Indian fighter King S. Woolsey against the Apaches, something that we will get into next week. We are going to talk about these rangers, called the Arizona Volunteers, in a coming episode, because though they did not receive anywhere near the equipment or supplies or support necessary for the task they were assigned, they actually were, for the short time they existed, pretty effective. At the same time that territorial officials were thinking of how best to get rid of some of Arizona's tribes and were planning to remove the friendly ones from their land, they also decided it would be a good idea to honor them as well, because, I don't know, they didn't have a sense of irony. The Howell Code formalized splitting the territory into four counties named after local tribes, namely Mojave, Yuma, Pima, and Yavapai, with county seats established at Mojave City, La Paz, Tucson, and Prescott, respectively. Pima County basically encompassed most of the Gadsden Purchase, which is to say south of the Gila River between New Mexico until 113 degrees 20 minutes longitude west. Don't ask me how they came up with that dividing line, they just did. Past that line, we get into Yuma County, which is the only one of the four original counties that still has the same borders. Heading up north from Yuma County, when we cross the Bill Williams River, we come to Mojave County, its eastern border still 113 degrees, 20 minutes longitude west, which is still mostly what it is today except for a small chunk north of the Grand Canyon it took over in 1883. We should again note that Mojave County at this time also took this large, weird, triangular chunk of what is today Nevada 
and the melodrama over separating this will be something we will cover at another time. Finally, north of the Gila River, and east of the random line drawn at, wait for it, 113 degrees, 20 minutes longitude west, we have Yavapai County. If you are following the map in your head, you might have realized that, yep, Yavapai County was huge. It took up fully half of the territory's land. One reason for this is because no one lived in that area except for some brave souls and a whole bunch of Amerindians. In coming years, Yavapai would become known as the Mother County, as parts or all of Maricopa, Pinal, Apache, Gila, Graham, Coconino, Navajo, and Greenland counties would be split off from it. Now that counties had been formed, the legislature could turn its attention to one particularly pressing issue that I find quite hilarious. Divorce. You see, as part of this first legislature, McClintock says it was only two weeks into the session, the body passed a bill granting one of its members, John G. Capron, a legal divorce from his wife, Sarah Rosser Capron. The cause for the divorce is that Capron claimed, quite vaguely, that he had been snookered into marriage by, quote, fraudulent concealment of criminal facts, end quote. You can insert your own theories about what that means here. The bill granting this divorce was only the second that Governor Goodwin signed. Others soon followed as Elliot Coos, the post-surgeon at Fort Whipple and later a distinguished writer, was divorced from his wife as well as yet another couple. The reason for the legislature getting into such domestic matters is, believe it or not, there was no law for divorce in the territory so the only way to obtain one was to go directly to the state legislature. Now, I'm not sure exactly why such a law didn't exist, though if I were to hazard a guess, it would land on the social taboos of the time. We don't have to look too far back in the past to find America's tradition, tracing back to a lot of its Protestant roots, of getting married and staying married no matter what. Up until even the mid-20th century, there was such a stigma around being a divorcee that it actually torpedoed candidates for political office. In fact, McClintock calls this practice, quote, the legislative divorce evil, end quote. But this would not be the last time the issue would come up. In 1873, the legislature would pass a bill granting none other than Governor Anson P.K. Safford a divorce from his wife though the few accounts of this I have read confess that they can't find the reason for this separation. In 1879, the legislature would pass a bill that granted 14 divorces at once, with a few other individual ones happening that same session. McClintock and others relate how some of the divorces obtained this way appear to be more than a little shady, as some men, who just so happened to be involved in territorial politics, used it to cast off wives in other parts of the country to marry people in Arizona. In case you were wondering, the ability of a state legislature to grant a divorce was actually upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court following a test case from the Oregon Territory in the 1850s. The court found that under English law, Parliament originally held this power and that colonial assemblies and later state assemblies were continuing in that tradition. 
However, finding this all very unsavory, the 49th U.S. Congress in 1885 enacted its own bill to strip state legislatures of this prerogative. In the end, the first legislature was in session 43 days, winding up its work on November 10, 1864. A grand total of 77 bills were introduced into the House, with another 45 being introduced into the Council. Of these, 40 eventually became law. Goodwin did not exercise his veto power once during this session, but did withhold his signature, essentially a pocket veto, on a memorial to transfer Arizona from the military district overseen by Carleton in New Mexico to the War Department of the Pacific. Goodwin essentially said such a move would change nothing and not achieve any of the goals the legislature wanted, including a faster delivery of goods, improved communication, and more protection from the Apaches. All in all, though, not a bad job for a first-time effort. Edward D. Tuttle, a member of the House of Representatives and consequently the person that William Claude Jones happened to bump into in San Francisco after fleeing the territory, wrote his sister about the session saying, quote, The members of both branches are with few exceptions an intelligent set of fellows, and I shall part with them with regret. We have passed a good code of laws, and I trust have laid the cornerstone of our jurisprudence well and deep and hope our young territory may prosper under it. End quote. That's pretty hearty praise considering that just over a year earlier, while Tuttle was still serving as part of the California Volunteers at Fort Yuma, he wrote, quote, I don't believe any amount of gold would tempt me to remain in this country if I were out of the service. End quote. Oh, what a difference a year makes. We are going to leave it there for now, but join me next week as we rewind a bit and take one last look at the soldiers still stationed in Arizona, the continuing fight against the Apache, and finally, yes, finally, bring the Civil War era to a close. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.